Okay, good morning to all. It should be a good morning. It should be a good day. We should hear Yeshua's v'nachamos for Klal Yisrael Besoros Tovos. Only good news. I want to thank our generous series sponsor, our Parsha series sponsor of the year, Becky and Avi Katz and family, in memory of Becky's father, Le'iloi Nishmas, David ben Menachem Manash, David Grossman, is Neshama Shadav and Ali. A reminder, immediately following Shir, as we've been doing each and every week and each and every Shir, we'll complete all of Sefer Tehillim. The more of you stay, the shorter it will take to divide all of Sefer Tehillim and complete it. Also, if you've not yet taken from the lobby, please take two flags, three flags. We now have the Israeli flag, the American flag, and the Tzahal flag to fly on your car. Be a proud Jew. Share it everywhere you go. Let people know we will not cower and we are not afraid. We are on page 170 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Page 170, Parshas Vayishlach, the story that we know so well, and yet, each time that we read it, we relive the excitement, the anxiousness, the anticipation, as if it is the first time. Each time we read it, there's something new. You're not going to believe me when I tell you how much I have to say in the first two psukim this week. I know you won't believe me. What's remarkable is we have, every year, had so much to say about the first two psukim of this and every parsha, and yet, each year there's still so, more, so much more to say. The Torah is just endless. You keep digging, you keep uncovering the layers and layers of it. And each year, whatever you're meant to be seeing and living and learning for that year is something new that comes, comes to your attention that year. So, we know this is the long-awaited reunion. I don't know long-awaited by whom, but by us since last Shabbos. The long-awaited reunion between Yaakov and Esav, these brothers, these adversaries, who've been on opposite sides, are trying to reconcile and come together and forge a future as brothers. How does he do it? Yaakov sends Malachim the fun of Esav Achiv. He sends emissaries. He sends agents ahead of him to his brother, Arts Seir Edom, to where Esav is. He doesn't stand on ceremony. He doesn't sit back and wait. He's not afraid, but rather he sends these agents. And in fact, we know from the Talmud until Menachem Begin and today, Parshas Vayishlach is what Jewish leaders have always read, when we need to engage in a conflict, when we need to confront adversaries, when we need to be willing to find the courage to stand up to enemies, Parshas Vayishlach has the formula, the recipe for the Jewish approach to these things. And while some years that is academic, and please God, we long to go back to a time in which it is academic, and we're studying Yaakov's formula for fighting as theoretical, this year, of course, there are so many lessons for today. So Yaakov sends these agents. You ready? Next Pasuk already. And Yaakov tells them, this is what I want you to tell Tell my master Esav. Anything peculiar about that? Adoni. Now we understand why Yaakov refers to Esav as Adoni when he is in front of Esav. When he is to his face, we understand a little better why does he call him Adoni. He's trying to show him respect and honor, hoping that will contribute to their reconciliation. But here Yaakov's not talking directly to Esav. To whom is he talking? To the agent that he's going to send. So why does he refer even to his own people as Adoni Esav? And what is the message? What is this critically important message that he should communicate, that he should transmit? Okay, you're going to go see my brother. He hates me. He's wanted to kill me. He wants to kill me right now. Here's what you need to tell him when you first see him. Are you ready? You're going to get in the Oval Office. You're going to get to the White House. Here's the message. You're in Qatar. Head of Mossad is in Qatar today. You're going to be negotiating. Here's the message. I lived with Lavan, and I was a good boy. I kept all of Torah and mitzvahs. Im Lavan garti, and that's where I've been. I'm so sorry I'm late. 
so sorry I've delayed. I'm so sorry it took me so long. You know where I've been? I was with Lavan. And while I was with Lavan, you should know, Im Lavan Garti, says Rashi, one of the most famous in the Torah, Im Lavan Garti, and Lona Asesi Sar V'chashev Elager. You think I stole the bracha and the bracha was I was going to become some famous influencer. I was going to become some superstar, rock star. I was going to have so many followers. Know that I was a stranger. I was a stranger. I was fighting for my life against this used car salesman father-in-law of mine, this trickster who kept deceiving me. It's not worthwhile for you to hate me. I haven't broken through to have what you want. You should know where I was and how I was living and what I needed to do to get by. And despite that, Garti, I lived with Lavan. Garti is gematra, the same numerical value as Taryag, 613. Klamar, and it comes to teach. Im Lavan Arasha Garti, I lived with Lavan the wicked. V'taryag mitzvah shamarti v'lolamarti masavarayim. And it didn't, I didn't compromise. I was uncompromising. I lived in the, literally, the den of, den of iniquity. I lived in the backyard of a wicked person. I lived in the metropolis of spiritual decadence and corruption, and I didn't compromise an iota. That's the message. That's what Esav cares about. That's what's going to win him over. Esav's still bitter that you dressed up like him, that you fooled the father, that you stole the blessings. And the message is, just want to let you know, shul dinner, mafter yona, I'm a tzaddik. From my kepala to my fitzalach. I'm a tzaddik. I'm Lavan Garte. I lived with Lavan. And I kept, that's what's going to do it? Going to go see the head of Hamas in Qatar. Just want to let you know, in BRS, eight minyanim Shabbos morning, morning call, afternoon call, night call. We're killing it in the Torah and mitzvahs category. Okay. Why is it of interest to Esav? Why is that what's on Yaakov's mind? So many interpretations. We've seen many interpretations. If you want to hear old ones, you can listen to previous parashiyurim. These are all new, new to me, new to me at least, maybe not to you. Says Rav Salavechik, "Im Lavan Garti." Despite having lived in Padanaram for twenty years, Yaakov remained an alien there. The Gemara Baba Basar defines a Yoshev Ha'ir as one who lives continually in a city for thirty days, while Anche Ha'ir live in a city for twelve months. These categories are different levels of citizenship. And the first thing Yaakov is telling him is, "I didn't settle down. I never became a resident." I didn't have the luxury of fitting in or belonging. I not only was I not a superstar leader influencer, I couldn't even fit in. I wasn't even a resident. But moreover, says the Rav the following. Yaakov was taken away from his parental home and experienced a long night of darkness, misery, and distress. He was burdened with the mission of proving to the world that the covenantal community was capable of practicing Avram's unique moral code by living a lifestyle of saintliness. Not only in the promised land, but in Gullus, in exile, far from the hills and valleys of Hebron and Shechem. Im Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan. And yet, Tayag Mitzvah Shamarti. Yaakov stayed with Lavan 20 years. Enough time to settle down and become a citizen of Haran, to consider himself a veteran resident. And he should have said, Im Lavan Yashavti. He should have said, I dwelled. I became a citizen, a resident. Yashavti, I was a Yoshev, a Toshav. Why does it say Garti? Garti comes from the word ger, because he felt like a stranger. The way his son Yosef later felt in Egypt, he had not assimilated. He had not integrated himself into love and society and community. He had not accepted their morals, their code of ethics, or their lifestyle. He sojourned to Haran for a long time, yet he preserved 
He preserved his moral religious identity, his commitment to Hashem of Avram, his commitment to the way of life that Hashem of Avram sanctioned, his commitment to the promised land, to Eretz Yisrael. All those commitments and many more were not affected at all. Yaakov was as dedicated at the end of his 20 years of servitude in Lavan's house as he was the first night he spent on the cold stones in Beit El when he pledged, Hashem will be my God. At the completion of his sojourn in Haran, the angel of Hashem revealed himself to Yaakov. In other words, you remain loyal to your spiritual heritage and faith in me. It's a very beautiful insight. Yaakov was not saying this as a message to Esav to win Esav over. Yaakov was saying this as a statement of himself. And who was he saying it to? You and me, each and every one of us. Wherever you are, you're in Gullus, you're in exile, whether geographically outside the land of Israel or even in Israel, in a state of exile, when the kind of atrocity of October 7th could have happened, we are in a state of exile. In a time and a period of Hashirah Sashchina, that can't happen. We feel the bitterness of that exile in the land and outside the land right now. And one might think, how are we meant to navigate? How can we live a righteous religious life? How can we see and find Hashem here? And Yaakov says, I lived with Lavan. I lived with Lavan and I didn't assimilate. I didn't lose my identity. I didn't compromise an iota in Lavan Garti, Shemarti. Yosef was burdened with a similar task. He again had to prove that Avram's covenant could be practiced outside the promised land, that the moral laws are not contingent upon geography and chronology. The difference between Yaakov and Yosef's assignment is a dual one. First, says the Rav, Yaakov had to prove that the Torah is reliable in poverty and oppression, that the immigrant, no matter how hard he has to work for a livelihood, no matter how poor and oppressed, is capable of if he makes up his mind to give devotion and loyalty to his, to his ancestral tradition. Yosef's mission was to demonstrate that enormous success and limited riches, admiration, prominence, and power are not in conflict with a saintly covenantal life. The immigrant, no matter what his destiny turns out to be, glorious success or miserable failure, can, if he possesses the heroic quality of either Yaakov or Yosef, attend to his commitment. It's an incredible insight. Yaakov and Yosef both prove to us that the Torah travels. In our first rites, that the poles that are put into the Aron the other kalim of the Besamikdash of the Mishkan, the poles, once the Mishkan rests, are removed out of that kli, out of that utensil. But the Aron, the Ark of the Covenant, the Torah, Akadosha, the Luchos, Abris, the poles remain. Right? So first, you know why? Because the Aron is transportable. Torah comes with us wherever we are. Torah is not only relevant in the Promised Land. Torah is not only relevant while you're in Yeshiva or Shul. Torah is not only relevant when you're in your gap year. Torah is not only relevant when you're a newly married kolo couple. Torah has those poles. It travels with us wherever we go, wherever we live, whatever we are confronting. Torah comes with us. Yaakov and Yosef both proved that to us. They both took Torah, were informed and inspired by it in a place of gullus. But they did it from diametrically opposed socioeconomic statuses. Yaakov does it from a place of poverty. And he says, even with nothing, even with working overtime, with honesty and integrity and fighting to go collect pachem ketanim, even building myself up from nothing and from poverty, I didn't abandon Torah. Yosef had the opposite problem. It is a problem that we have not had too many times in our history. And that's why I don't think we have such a rich tradition for it. And we're suffering from that today. And that is living Torah in a place of not poverty, but a place of, of great wealth, of great prosperity. We have a Masorah of how to live with pogroms and persecution and poverty. We got 2,000 years of practice. But how to have a Masorah to live with prosperity? What should be our priorities? What's our attitude to material success? How do we integrate it with spirituality? Do we flaunt it in the face of those, our host nation and neighbors? 
What's our Mesorah for living with prosperity? Now we have less of a rich tradition. And we are living in truly prosperous times, not to suggest that we don't have a large Tomchei Shabbos program here at BRS, that we're not launching the Florida Chesed Network. We have enormous Chesed needs, but even those living with the least have much more than the wealthiest had just a short time ago. The family who are receiving the most help from the community still have the latest versions of smartphones and cars with power windows and a roof over their head and food to eat. That's a great testimony to our community. That's not an indictment of them. But it means that even our poverty is with a level of prosperity that was unprecedented from before. And Yosef teaches us that because Yosef descends to Egypt. He rises to be the viceroy. He has great prosperity and it's very easy to lose your way. You could become an assimilated observant Jew. You go to the daf, you make it to Minyan, you pay your tuition, but in your values and priorities, you're totally assimilated. You could become an assimilated observant Jew when you have too much prosperity. So says Rav Soloveitchik, first Yaakov, and later we'll get to Yosef, teach us that the Torah is relevant, the Torah is accessible, the Torah informs and inspires and enriches and empowers and obligates wherever we are in whatever state we are, whatever time of life we are, and whether we are in poverty or whether we are in prosperity, the Torah remains relevant. And that's what Yaakov was saying after all these years in this moment of reunion, he is reflecting back on that experience. That is Rav Soloveitchik. The Amaros Tahoros, the Rachma Shifka Rebbe, in Lav Angarti, he quotes the Or Yitzchak, Rashi says, He has now a different nuance. Not our question, why would Esav care? But Yaakov says, Now the truth is, every Jew has to fulfill all 613. Now our Torah, Kadosh, is made up of positive commandments and negative commandments. Now, I understand why it makes sense to say I fulfilled the positive. I put on tzitzis. I put on tefillin. I will light the Hanukkah candles. I heard the shofar. I shook the lulav. Positive commandments, you can say I fulfilled. But How do you fulfill? There is a fly. I don't know who this fly was in a previous life. <laughs> Maybe I mistreated him in a Parsha shear and he's back to get me. But he will not leave me alone. Welcome. Welcome back to Shear Fly. Welcome back. So it makes sense to say, Kiamti, I fulfilled a positive commandment. How do you fulfill a negative commandment? Don't eat non-kosher. Ooh, I fulfilled it. What do you mean you fulfilled it? Just don't do it. Don't do it. Imagine at the end of the day, you say to your spouse, wasn't I an extraordinary husband today? What did you do? I didn't scream at you. I didn't yell at you. I didn't hit you. I didn't abuse you. Uh, I don't know that you get the Nobel Peace Prize for that. What did you fulfill? You just did what you were supposed to do. You didn't violate what you're not supposed to do. We don't call that a kiyam, a fulfillment. The losa say the negative commandment is don't do that. You didn't actually do Anything. Timimekaye means you did something. Alosa say Allah, a negative means you didn't do. Elaha inyun, daidesha mefates adam lavar alaveros, halavim misgaber alaveina over. That's a misnomer. The truth is that the person who can withstand and resist 
the temptation, the drive, the urge to do the wrong thing did do something. You know what they did? They defeated the urge. They defeated that drive. They defeated that instinct. They did something. The premise of our question was wrong. We asked, you do something when you do a positive commandment. You didn't do anything if you didn't violate a negative one. Says the Rachmat wrong. If you found the courage, the energy, the conviction, the will, the resolve to not do the wrong thing, when you were tempted, when you were driven, when you wanted to, then you did do something. There was a kiyam there too. Now, when is it you can say that by fighting the Yetzirah, you did something in the positive when you had a Yetzirah for something? If you didn't have a Yetzirah for that thing, you didn't do anything by not doing it. So, I have a Yetzirah for food that is unhealthy, for some non-kosher foods. I have no Yetzirah for lobster, for shellfish. Zero, nada, nothing, no temptation. If Hashem would come to me and say, Goldberg, enjoy a lobster, I'd say thanks, no thanks. No interest, no interest. So I'm not fighting a Yetzirah, that's not a kiyam. But if there is a Yetzirah, and I don't need to spend now, if you want, for later, for the right donation, I'm happy to tell you all my Yetzirahs, but not right now. But if I have a Yetzirah and I in fact fight it, and I, and I resist it, so there's a kiyam, there's a fulfillment. So how could Yaakov say, I fulfilled all 613. You know why? In love on Garti. He lived with the captain of Yetzahara. He lived with the Yetzahara. He lived with the engine of Yetzahara. So because he lived with Lavan, who was the greatest source of Yetzahara to do the wrong thing, he can say, not only did I fulfill the positive commandments, but he can say wholeheartedly, V'tariag mitzvos, shamarti, all 613, including the negative ones, I kept and I observed. Azazak di rach meshrifka. Let's keep going. Tefer Shmuel, you know I was getting back to Rav Shmuel Berenbaum. Got a beautiful email from his grandson, who was so gratified to hear how much we're quoting his grandfather. It's not a favor. His Torah is beautiful. I've really been enjoying it. And in this new Sefer Tefer Shmuel, Shmuel Berenbaum, the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir Brooklyn says the following. Again, Rashi quotes, Lo I didn't become influential and famous. I was a ger, garti, not yeshavti. Tarek mitzvah shamarati, the same gematria. I understand the first interpretation of Rashi, why this would make Esav happy. Esav, you think I became all that? All these years you've been wondering. I stole the bracha and then I fulfilled it? Don't worry, I didn't. I've been a stranger. I've been hated upon. I've had to navigate. Don't worry. However, the second interpretation that I kept all Torah and mitzvahs what in the world would Esav care if Yaakov kept all the Torah or no? Esav's angry, why? Yaakov, you pulled the biggest, fast one in the world. You pretended to be me and you stole my brachos. So if you tell me, but you've not yet received the fulfillment of those brachos, maybe he's appeased. But that you're a good from boy still? That's part of why I hated you to begin with. How does that make Esav happy? Rashi says, Because Yitzchak had told Yaakov, if at any time you don't fulfill who you're meant to be, 
if you don't meet your potential, if you don't reach out and grab onto these brachos, if you violate them, then you no longer are covered by the brachos. You'll now be exposed to the elements. No, I'm not vulnerable because I kept Torah and mitzvahs. Built into the original bracha was a condition that if I wouldn't observe, then the brachas would not protect me. So as we're about to meet up, I want you to know, know that there's no chink, there's no crack in my armor. I kept Torah and mitzvahs, I still am deserving of those brachos, and therefore I am not vulnerable, I am not vulnerable to you. Od Yeshlamar says, the Tefer Shmuel, will become aware that Yaakov fulfilled the will, the word of Hashem, therefore God is with him. Now he'll change gears, paradigm shift. Instead of Esav wanting to battle Yaakov, defeat Yaakov, Maybe he'll want to enter a covenant. If Hashem is with you, let me grab on. Let me make a covenant. We see that with Yitzchak and Avimelech. We saw that earlier. And that's what Yaakov's hope is here. Od Yeshlomar. Another interpretation. Divrei HaChavetz Chaim. You know what the Chavetz Chaim said about this? Again, what's the question? Why in the world will Esav care that Yaakov kept observing Torah and mitzvahs? Why should that appease him in any way? In fact, Chavetz Chaim understood this. Listen carefully. It will change the way you hear this Rashi forever. In Lavan Garti, the Pasuk says, says Rashi, V'tayag mitzvah shemarti, Gamatria Garti is tayag. I lived with Lavan and I kept all of Torah and mitzvahs. Was Yaakov flexing? He didn't know what the word flex meant at that time. Or what the kids would call a T4. Who cares you kept all Torah and mitzvahs? Why is Yaakov flexing? Says the Chavetz Chaim, Yaakov is not flexing at all. He's not showing off with pride. He's in fact offering self-criticism. And what's the criticism he's offering himself? He says, I should have learned from Lavan. In Lavan, Garti v'tarig mitzvah shamarti v'lo harayim and I didn't learn from his evil ways. Isn't that a good thing? If you live with bad people and you don't adopt their bad habits, isn't that a good thing? Says the Chavetz Chaim, no. Because there's something to learn from everyone. You shouldn't have learned to follow their bad habits. What could you have learned? Lavan neglected his power, his potential, the person he was meant to be. He dropped it all, he abandoned it all to pursue money, material possessions. He was driven. He was passionate. He pursued it. Yaakov should have learned from that. Not to run after money, but to run after Torah, chesed. Looking at Lavan, his drive, his passion, his singular focus, there was something to learn. I could have learned. I could have learned that. And I didn't. I didn't. I didn't learn it. Don't worry that I got the brachos for money. You know why? I lived with Lavan. I saw how much he valued money, how greedy he was, but I didn't learn that from him. 
This is the opposite of the first interpretation. I should have learned from him the same passion, the same pursuit, the same drive, only for Torah instead of money, but I didn't. I failed to learn from him. Therefore, I am unworthy of the brachos, so don't be jealous of me that I took the brachos. Don't worry and don't be jealous. Don't worry and don't be jealous. Others say, maybe we're going to see this now. I think the uh, Rav Druk has a similar interpretation. And he says similarly, I should have learned from him, says Rav Druk, so beautiful. Tver Shmuel and Rav Druk say similarly. What does David HaMelech say in Tehillim? Kuf Yudtes. Do you see the picture of the soldier with the Tehillim that the bullet, the Tehillim stopped the bullet? Someone said to me, even a bullet can't make it through Kuf Yudtes. <laughs> Kuf Yudtes is the longest parak in Tehillim. The one that's alphabetical order, you spell names, takes forever to say. Even a bullet can't make it through Kuf Yudtes. Anyways, Kuf Yudtes, Pasuk Tzadiches. The Pasuk says, Me'oivai, from my enemies, I gain wisdom. What wisdom can I get from my enemy? We can learn what not to do, how not to behave, who to never become. But we can also learn that single-minded focus that unyielding passion and tenacity, that resolve, it's channeled and directed in the wrong way, but if we can somehow adopt and then adapt, we can achieve incredible things. When you see the power of the Yitzhahara, that it never gives up, and it never gives in, and it never takes a break, and it never rests. Person should always learn from that. And that's what it means. From my enemies, I should learn how to pursue mitzvot. Look at the way that people pursue. Look at the money they spend. Look at how they run after. Look at how they stay up at night to do the wrong thing. Take those same energies and direct it to do the right things. And now we can understand what Yaakov sent to Esav. He didn't come to flex he didn't come to praise, praise himself. It wasn't a point of pride. His point was, I could have and I should have learned and I didn't. I didn't learn. And therefore, he was knocking himself to his brother in the hope that Esau will be more open to, to greeting him. Okay, that's the Tefer Shmuel and the Lavosesh. Let's keep going. Skip to Pasuk Ches. Turn, ooh, turn the page. Page 172. <laughs> Yaakov became very frightened. Vayira means frightened. Vayetzer. What does Vayetzer mean? Yetzer could mean a Yetzer inclination. Yetzer Yetzira could mean to create. What does Yetzer mean here? Vayira Yaakov. Yaakov was scared. Vayetzer lo. All right, you're all cheating. You're looking in the English. You could cheat. It's an open book test. He became frightened and it distressed him. It distressed him. It made him stressed. What's the difference between being afraid and being stressed? Vayira, Vayetzer. If the Torah uses two words, it's describing two separate emotions that Yaakov was experiencing. 
Maybe we can relate to them. Maybe there's a lesson in it for us. What was he experiencing it? Vayira, he was afraid. And as a result of that, Vayetzer. So what did he do? He led to action. Vayachat he divided the people into two. The flock, the cattle, the camels, two camps. It was a military strategy. He was diversifying the encampments. So if he got attacked, eliminated one, they would survive. There would be a, there would be a future. But what's the difference between Vayira and Vayetzer? And here again, we have many interpretations for you. So the Amaras Tahoros, the Rach Mishrifka, quotes first the Avashalom. Vayira Yaakov Ma'od, Yaakov was very afraid, Vayetzer lo. Shaya Yaakov Meitzer Vadoeg Yaakov was really afraid. And then the fact that he was afraid got him very anxious. Why would being afraid make him anxious? Why would being afraid make him anxious? I mean, being afraid is in itself an expression of anxiousness. But it's not just the fear included anxiousness. It's being afraid made him anxious. Why? Why? So the poem of continues. She Yaakov avino haya meitzer al zeh shemizyari me'esav. She yotzu mizeh te'eno sholem bibitchono ba'ashem yizborach she'yazor lo. If you ever feel yourself panicked, afraid, frightened, then you have to ask yourself, where's my Amuna? Now there is a natural, in the Amuna Shir we've been learning, we finished, we're going to start something new tomorrow, we were learning the Amaimer of the Pnei Menachem, the previous Ger Rebbe during the Persian Gulf War, we learned a beautiful Amaimer of his, during the Persian Gulf War, in which he validated, if you put on a gas mask and you're going into a sealed room, there's something wrong with you if your heart's not fluttering a little bit. A little healthy fear. If you live fearless, then you will live reckless. Healthy fear is good because it means you'll drive safer and it means you won't go to the edge of the cliff, literally and figuratively of life. So a healthy fear is good. But a debilitating fear, a fear in the extreme, is in fact an expression of a failure of emunah and bitachon. Because if a person realizes, you could listen to the conversation I had the other night with Moshe Gersh, or Moshe Gersh, the author of of It's All the Same to Me and his new book, The Three Conditions. We had a conversation on Sunday night. The Baal Shem Tov's idea of hishtavos, shaveh, everything's equal, equanimity, it's all the same to me. That means that I have a range of emotions in life. There's happiness and joy and laughter. There's sadness and grief and pain and everything in between. There's a range of emotions that's human and that's real and that's valid. But behind each of those emotional experiences and expressions is the absolute knowledge that what's all the same is that it's all from Hashem. There's an Almighty, He's curating, He's choreographing, He's organizing all that happens. I'm not a victim of randomness or chance. To know that nothing that happens is random or chance doesn't bring a loved one back, doesn't make pain less, as much as it doesn't make me less happy to know that the source of this happiness is not coincidence, but is Hashem. In both directions, it's not meant to dull the emotion that's natural to experience, but behind the emotion is the knowledge, hishtavas, equanimity, that it's all the same. Why is it all the same? Because it all traces to Hashem. It all traces, it all comes back to Hashem. I'm going to give you a terrible metaphor, but... If a person is watching a film, if there is such an appropriate film that a person should watch, speaking of the Yetzirah, but if a person is watching a film, there are parts of the film that will make you cry. 
They tug on the hearts, the heartstrings. They're emotional. They make you cry. Parts of the film that you laughed out loud, they were hilarious. But one thing you know about the film is that there was a writer and a director to the whole film. You're not watching something unfold that's just random or chance or it just happens to be coming together. That's what Hishtavas means. There are times in life I'm going to cry. There are times in life I'm going to laugh. I'm not trying to suppress those emotions, but I meant to trace back that at all times I know with a certain sense of peace, inner peace, I could have an inner peace and cry because there's grief. I could have an inner peace and be singing and dancing with joy because there's simcha. But inside there's a peace and a sameness to know that nothing is chance and random. It all comes from a higher power we call Hashem. That's the summary of the conversation Sunday night. Still read his book, still listen to the conversation. And this is something that needs chizuk every single day, more and more and more work, to live with that emunah bitachon, that hishtavos, that as I live my life with the range of emotion, I'm not living it, as Rav Moshe put it, down here. I'm not going for my range of emotion at a low level. I'm living it up here. I'm with you, Hashem, hishtavos. I'm living with the director. I'm living with the writer. I don't know how the movie turns out. I don't even know what's in the next scene. And I don't know whether I'm going to be laughing or crying, but however the next scene turns, I know that there's a writer and that there's a director and that the film will conclude the way it's meant to be, that nothing about it is chance or random. So says the Panam Yafos, what was Yaakov saying? Vayir Yaakov, Maud Yaakov was experiencing a moment of unhealthy, unwarranted panic. And what did he do immediately? He did a gut check. He did an evaluation. And he said to himself, uh-oh, Vayetzerlo. I'm deeply troubled. My level of panic, my level of anxiousness, my level of fear, I'm not talking, by the way, I want to be very clear. You know our support for mental health. Somebody who's diagnosed with anxiety and those challenges, we're not talking about it because you lack emunah bitachon. Don't go to a doctor, skip your medicine, just go to the emunashir. The emunashir is also very helpful. It's not me saying that. Doctors will tell you that. But a person needs to also engage the other support they need. We're not talking about somebody who's been diagnosed with anxiety. We're talking about everyday anxieties that we have, that more and more of us have, that before corona, certainly during corona, since October 7th, person almost needs to see a doctor if they're not having some anxiety and ask themselves, how are they alive? Do they have a pulse? If they're not, after a corona, after October 7th, after the rise of anti-Semitism, but, but there's out of range. And Yaakov felt what I'm feeling is out of range. This is not the range of what the Panei Menachem validated you should feel if you put on a gas mask and go to a sealed room. Yaakov felt Vayira Yaakov ma'od, ma'od, severe. And therefore, Vayetzerlo, what bothered him was, uh-oh, Mishishlo, and so therefore, they're two separate experiences. It's not a redundancy. We asked, Pasuk says, Yaakov, Yaakov was afraid, and he was afraid, it's a redundancy, it's repetitive. Says the Rachman Shifka, no, it's not. Vayira Yaakov Maod, he was very afraid of Esav. Vayetzer lo, and then he got very afraid that he was afraid. Where's my Amunah? Where's my Bitachon? What's going on? I'm the son of Yitzchak. I'm the grandson of Avram. I'm the father of the Shiftei Ka. Where's my Amunah and Bitachon? Where's my Dveikas? Where's my equanimity? Where's my Ishtavas? Where's my confidence and my clarity? My knowledge. 
that everything's from Hashem. So I'll take my three-step formula, diplomacy and prayer and preparing for war, my three-step formula. I'm going to do it all, but without panic, because I know Hashem is in charge. So a very important and beautiful interpretation of the Rach Mitzrifka, that these are two separate experiences, Vayira and Vayetza. See, several more, several more. The Medrash HaGadol says, Vayira mibachutz me'esav. Vayira, he was very afraid of Esav. He's about to face his brother. He's about to face his beast, hunter, barbarian of a brother. He was afraid. Vayetzer mibifnim minashav. The fear came from his brother. The worry came from his wives. Sha'amru lo nashav. Lama lekachtanu mibesavinu lamusa yede Esav. Rachel and Leah say, Hey Yaakov, we were happy at home, shepherdesses, growing up, nice life, all good. Would you bring us to this dangerous situation? Why are you bringing us to the Middle East where everyone's got rockets pointed at us? We were all well and good. What's going on? So the Medjish HaGadlo says, Vayira is Esav. Vayetzer Minashov from his wives who had the seemingly legitimate complaint. Why did you bring us into this? The Hamak Dover than Siv says differently. Vayira me'esav, ve'yetzer lo alzeh sheish lo pachad umora me'esav. Zem mara shemagia ilav ra'a. Shalev margish atavu ara'a. Shayetzer lo lashem mashalach shluchim ve'orev atzma lavi amachama. Meaning, he was afraid of Esav, but then vayetzer lo says the Siv is, he sensed, he had a premonition. Shalev margish atavu ara'a. And the premonition is what scared him. You ever wake up in the morning having after had a dream? You have a premonition about something? Says the Natsiv, those are the two emotions that he felt. The Abar Benel says, Vayira me'esav, vayetzer me'arba me'os ish imo. Vayira, he was afraid of Esav himself. He also was anxious over what distressed him was, Esav's army. Again, each of them are bothering, from, are starting from the same point. What's the point each of them are starting from? Why do we have two words? Vayira and vayetzer. We just read the Chumash. Balkorei, I almost done. Haftorah, let's get to the Kiddush. We don't stop and think. Each of these Mepharshim, Rishonim and Achronim, were bothered. They weren't just reading the Parsha. They weren't just trying to get through it. They were trying to understand it. And when you read a Pasuk and there seems to be a redundancy, you have to stop and ask, what? Why? Vayira, Vayetzer. Same emotion, different emotion, same cause, two different causes. And what's beautiful is once you ask the question, then look how many beautiful answers there are. Look how many beautiful answers. The Amaras Tahoros we saw too, the Medrash HaGadol, the Nitziv, the Yabar Benel, the Das HaKenim. He was afraid because he heard that Esav was coming after him to fight. And he was distressed. He thought, why is Esav now coming to get him? <coughs> what must that mean? What is that indicating? Yitzchak must have died. Why? The fact that Esav was coming to attack him now, why would that indicate that Yitzchak died? Because Esav's whole strategy was, who is Esav? What's the mitzvah he excels at? Esav is even better than Yaakov. Even better than Yaakov. So Yaakov says to himself, I know that Esav will never put a finger on me while my father is alive. He would never do that to dad. So if he's coming after me now, what must that mean? Something happened to Tati. Something happened to Abba. I'm hedging because I don't know what Yaakov called his father. 
something must have happened. So that's how the Das, the Cain, and Balayatosos understand the two words. Vayira, uh-oh, brother's coming after me. Vayetzer, uh-oh, that must mean something happened to Abba. The Orachayim has another interpretation. Vayira, he says, you know what? I'm not going to prepare myself for war because what message will that send? What will that signal to Esav if I show up wearing a ceramic bulletproof vest and a gun around my back? You know, when you're ready and living with war. It's my sister's birthday the other day. I FaceTimed her to wish her happy birthday. She was out for dinner with her husband the first time since before Rosh Hashanah. She has two sons-in-law and a son in the army. So she was almost apologetic, not that she had to be. She certainly deserved it to be out for dinner. She deserved it. But she said to me, she showed me, she turned her FaceTime camera around and said, let me show you what being out to dinner right now means. And at almost every table, there was somebody wearing a M16, a gun on their back. That's what it means to be out to dinner right now in Israel. So Yaakov says, if I show up to dinner with Esav, and even if I'm dressed nicely, but I've got a gun around my, what message am I sending him? So he's worried to not come with a gun. He's worried to come with a gun. If I come with a gun, he doesn't come with a gun. I'm going to ruin it all. If I don't come with a gun, but he came with a gun, I'm in trouble. That's why Vayira Vayetzer. Orchaim has another interpretation, but I think we've seen a lot. So isn't it amazing? If you just stop and pause to ask the question, Vayira, Vayetzer, look how many we saw. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven interpretations so far about why we would have those two words. But we're not done yet. Order now and you get, we're not done yet. Tefer Shmuel, Shmuel Berenbaum, another interpretation. Tefer Shmuel says the following. These psukim all go together. And in these psukim, you see that Yaakov did several things. He divides his family into two. When did he do that? Before or after he listened to a living with Amunashir. Look at the chronology of the Pasuk. This is very important, Hever. Listen up. Yaakov's afraid of Esav. Then he's afraid of the fact that he got afraid. Uh-oh, I just had a major dip, fail in Bitachon and Amuna. Then he girded himself in Amuna and Bitachon, got himself ready, reoriented, recalibrated himself to have faith in Hashem, and did what next? Divided his camp in two. If you have such faith in Hashem, what are you doing? Just get to the base Medrash. Just open your Tehillim. Why do you need an army? Why do you need a military? Isn't Torah what protects us? Isn't Tehillim what will take care of us? Why did he divide the, arm, the camp in two? What's the problem? I thought if you have Amunah and Bitachon, then everything will be okay. And if you have soldiers or daven for them, then maybe you're showing that you don't really have faith that Hashem's going to take care of you. Why is Yaakov doing that? Says the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir Brooklyn Tefer Shmur of Shmur Berenbaum. You know why? Because a Yid has a responsibility to do hishtadlis. A Jew has to take initiative. We have to operate in the natural order and the natural world. Once he divides the camp in two, 
Then he turns to open his tilim into Davin. Then he opens the tilim. He starts Davin. What did he do first? Say Tehillim. And then when that's done, just to hedge, just in case, a few of you grab a gun, go to the front, just in case. We won't need it because the tilim will take care of us. No, says Rashul Berenbaum. First, army, soldiers, military. Then, when that's set, in the natural order, the natural world, you've taken the initiative that is required of you. Now he opens the Tehillim and starts davening. Even though the Gemara Sanhedrin tells us a person should always be makdim tefillah Always daven before the tzara comes. But if you already find yourself in a crisis, First, hishtadlus. First, initiative. And then, you go daven. You know why? Because if you begin with davening, you know what Hashem says to you? Uh, buddy, how do you expect me to make a miracle for you if you don't take the steps, the initiative for yourself. What do you want me to do? You have thousands to the north and thousands to the south, and I ran on the verge of a nuclear weapon, and in the natural order, if you don't have a border and boundaries, and you don't have a military and soldiers, and you don't have a strategy and a system, then there's, Hashem says, those kind of miracles I don't do. So you take the initiative, and I'll make miracles within your initiative that look like the natural order. So you've got to take the first step. Here's how I understand it. And where do we learn this from? What happened when we were found between the rock and the hard place? The first rock and hard place, called the Yamsuf and the Mitzrim. Before we were between Hezbollah and Hamas, we were between the rock and the, the uh, sea and the Mitzrim. And you know what Kalah Yisrael did? They just got back from their year in Israel, and they found themselves in a crisis. Oh, they had the biggest Tehillim rally ever. Opened up their Tehillim. And they started, ooh, Tehillim. And what does Hashem say to Moshe? Dabel b'nei Yisrael. Hashem says to Moshe, Moshe, what, what's going on down there? What are you doing? Aren't you in charge of these people? What are you doing? Moshe's like, yeah, aren't, isn't it beautiful? Tehillim, massive Tehillim. Unbelievable. Hashem says, buddy, this is not the time for Tehillim. Dabel b'nei Yisrael v'yiso. There'll be a time, of course we say Tehillim. Of course the centrality of Torah and Tefillah, we're going to get to that. Of course the kol kol Yaakov. But first, start walking, start moving. Hishtadlis, initiative, says Rav Shmuel Berenbaum. From our parsha, you see the formula from moments of crisis and urgency, from moments of conflict and war. We have to take our initiative. And the way I have always understood it is what is the Torah telling us? Not that we take initiative that has nothing to do with Hashem and then we daven and it's all up to Hashem. The way that I always understood it is we daven in two ways. We daven with our hands and feet, and we daven with our mouths. We daven through initiative. And we say, Hashem, I'm taking my initiative, but guide it, protect it, make it successful. And then we daven with our words. But if we don't daven with our hands and feet, then Hashem says, don't come daven with your words. Rav Soloveitchik says similarly. Rav says also, Vayira Yaakov Ma'od, Yaakov was very frightened. If Yaakov's entourage included angels ready to take orders, why was Yaakov so afraid? 
The book of Malachim describes how one angel destroyed 180,000 of Sancheirev's army. So that's a pretty good ratio. One angel got rid of 180,000 of Sancheirev's army. Must be we devalue the lives of Sancheirev because of that ratio. Why was Yaakov so concerned about an army of only 400? If one angel could take care of 180,000, then certainly the angel Hashem promised him can take care of 400 measly soldiers of Esav. Says Rav Soloveitchik similarly, because this is obvious, and this has always been our Mesorah. Miracles do not occur as long as the natural cosmic order is not pursued. Man must seize the initiative in a natural way. No miracles occur until all natural means are exhausted. The angels would not give assistance as long as Yaakov can handle the situation. Why then did Yaakov send angels at all? Yaakov thought it was impossible for a son of Yitzchak and a grandson of Avram to be spiritually insensitive, that Esau's road to repentance could not be entirely blocked. Angels were a common sight in Avram and Yitzchak's home. Yaakov hoped the sight of angels might awaken a feeling of longing in Esau of nostalgia and contrition. But Yaakov understood that despite sending an angel, and an angel easily could defeat 400, that's only if you also operate in the natural order. We have to take initiative. We have to take Ishtadlis. We have to take Ishtadlis. Okay, he also has... Oh, you know what? I'm going to read this one too. Rav Salavitchik says, Vayira Yaakov Ma'od Vayetzelo. We shared seven, eight interpretations. Why both words? Vayira, Vayetzer. Do they mean two separate things and were they stimulated by two separate reasons? Says Rav Salavitchik, get another reason. Rashi comments that Vayira Yaakov suggests Yaakov expressed fear he might be killed. Vayetzer conveys Yaakov's concern he might have to kill others. You know the famous Golda Meir quote. We can forgive them for killing us, but we can't forgive them for turning our sons into killers who have to kill them. Something like that. That's where Soloveitchik understands here is Vayira, Vayetzer. Vayira, I'm afraid Esav's gonna kill us. Vayetzer, but I just realized that means to stop him, we might have to kill him. And to turn me and my family and my entourage into people who have to kill, Vayetzer. That made him afraid, why? Yaakov, recognizing this conflict with Esav would continue until the Messianic era, was afraid that his descendants would ultimately come to adopt Esav's violent modus operandi of Yedayim Yedei Esav. What scared him was that they would have to wear the Yedei Esav. He didn't want them to have to wear the Yedei Esav. Vayira, he was afraid of Esav. Vayetzer. I can't tell you how afraid I am of this. We ran a program in our community a couple times called Peace of Mind. It's extremely expensive, in which we brought a unit of the army to Boca, who had gone through a conflict in Israel, fought one of the wars, and never dealt with their PTSD. And we brought them with their therapist. They spend a week in our community. It's a beautiful program. It's not Boca. They run it all over. Our community did it twice, peace of mind. Because when a person is in a battlefield, and what they face, and what they're forced to do, and the decisions they have to make, and the conditions they have to live in, are not easily forgotten. Yaakov Vayira, he's worried. What if something happens to them in the battlefield? And what will be with them after the battlefield? If that's not a partial perspective for today, I don't know one. It's incredibly, oh, you see, I'm guilty. Now I got to pay for the new shul. Because my kids don't know I give a partial shear on Tuesday mornings, 9.30 to 10.30. All right, so give them a kanas. I have to give them a kanas. So Vayira, Vayetzer, we saw eight or nine interpretations, why both words, but this last one of Rav boy, does it resonate today. Vayira, what if they kill our boys? But Vayetzer, 
what will be of our boys if they have to kill them? Wow. Wow. Okay, let's keep going. Perak Lamed Beis Pasuk Aleph. Perak Lamed Beis Pasuk Aleph. Katonti mikola chasadim mikola emes asher asisa esavdecha kiv makli avarti esaradin azeva taisa l'shnei machanos. Says Yaakov Avinu, Katonti, I've become diminished by all the kindness and all the truth that you've done for me. For with my staff I crossed the Yarden and now I have become separated, broken up into two separate camps. Katonti mikola chasadim. I understand why Yaakov feels I understand why he feels diminished by the chesed. Hashem, you did more for me than I deserved. You went above and beyond. Katonti, I understand. But what does it mean, Mikola Emes? What does that mean? I became diminished Mikola Emes. Emes means truth. If it's truth and if it's just, then why should Yaakov be diminished for it? He wasn't cashing in on anything. He was deserving of it. It's truth. It's MS. Says Rashi, MS. Amitas dvarecha. Shishamarti likola avtacha shiftachtani. Katonti, maybe I'm diminished, Hashem, that you followed your word, that you kept your word, that you guarded me and you followed through on all the promises that you made me. So bothered, says the Tefer Shmuel, he's bothered. That's a big deal. Yaakov Avinu is so impressed. Ooh, Hashem, you kept your word. Would you ever contemplate for a moment that Hashem would want to run His world not through truth? God's signature is truth. So what's going on over here? Shamarti. When Rashi interprets this, I don't know what he's adding. Not only did you keep your promises, shamarta, you safeguarded your promises. Not shakiyamta, not you fulfilled your promises. What language does Rashi use? Mikola emes, sheshamarta. Not kiyamta, you fulfilled. Shamarta means you guarded. What Yaakov is thanking Hashem for here is not that Hashem fulfilled His word. What Yaakov is thanking Hashem for is thank you for guarding me so that I lived in a way that I was worthy of you fulfilling your promise. Thank you. And that's what he says is the meaning at the Haggadah. Baruch Shomer Haftachasal Yisrael Baruch Hu. Baruch Shomer Haftachasal. Never did we doubt for a moment that God, you would follow through on your word, but Shomer, what it means you guarded is you guarded me so that I made the right decisions and I lived the right life so that I was worthy of your Indeed, following through on that promise. Rav Druk also is bothered by this expression of Mikola MS. He also tackles it. Katonti Mikola Chasadim, Mikola MS. What kind of MS over here? So listen to what he says. It's a very novel, very interesting interpretation. Hatsileni nami arachimi alaysav, save me from my brother from Esav. Kiareya nochi oso, penyavovi ikani imal banim. Madua choshesh kokach. God promised him, I'm with you. I'll take care of you. So why was Yaakov so worried? The Gemara Baruchas Davdala tells us, Yaakov was worried about 
Shama Yigra Machet means maybe the sin he'll lose out on the, maybe because of his mistakes, he'll be unworthy of the promise, the protection of Hashem. Which mistake? Shema Yigra Machet. Maybe because of Chet. Which Chet? What was he worried about? When Yaakov first came to Yitzchak to get the brachos, what did he say? Anochi, Esav Becharecha. I am Esav, your eldest son. Now true, Rashi has a whole way of getting out of it. Anochi, period, hard stop. Esav, period, hard stop. Becharecha. Rashi has a creative way of getting out of it. But Lamaisa, Yaakov lied. Lamaisa, Yaakov told his father, Anochi Esav Becharecha, I am Esav, your eldest son. He lied. He wasn't medactic Belashono. He didn't say the truth. And now he's worried. All this time, 20 years, he's been holding on to, uh-oh, I lied to my father, and I'm the Titan Emes Yaakov, and I lied to my father, and that's going to come back to bite me. So that's what he says now. He says, save me from my brother from Esav. That's a strange word. Because Anochi, I am afraid of him. It's a peculiar word there, Anochi. Says Rav Juk, not peculiar at all. At all. You know I am afraid? Anochi, because I lied to my father and I said, Anochi, Esav, Becharecha. Now we can understand, Katonti, Mikola Chasadim, Mikola Emes, because what's the Shema Yigra Machet? What was the Yigra Machet? Which Chet? The Chet of Anochi. That's what he was worried about. That's what he was worried about. That's what he wasn't being medayik in. Anochi. That was the fear. Okay, we have time for one last idea, which gets us about a third of through what we prepared. I wanted to spend some time talking to you about collective punishment. Also a big message for today. Collective punishment. Do we believe in collective punishment? Maybe we'll finish with this. Why has collective punishment come up in our parsha? Also very important for what's going on. Because we know the story, Dina is abducted. This is not the first time in Jewish history we've had Jewish hostages. Dina was held hostage. She was kept captive by a terror group called Shechem. And what do Levi and Shimon do? They come up, they concoct an entire scheme in order to retrieve, rescue their sister Dina. And why do they do that? Why are they led to do that? Because the Pasuk of the Torah tells us, no way this can happen. We can't let this stand. Perak Lamedalad, Pasuk Chafei. Lamedalad Chafei. They say, this can't stand. Our sister is abducted? No way. Goes back first to the beginning of Perak Lamedalad. V'nei Yaakov bo'u minasada. They came in, they heard it. V'yichar lehemo, they were very upset. And they said, this can't, this can't happen. This can't happen. We can't sit by. We can't allow this. We can't give them. So what do we do? They concoct the whole scheme. And they get the entire city of Shechem to pretend they can convert, give bris in their third day when they're the weakest. They come and they decimate. And the commentaries are all bothered. Isn't this collective punishment? The innocent civilians of Shechem just kill Chamor ben Shechem, who was the one who kidnapped and raped Dina. 
Just go after the Hamas savages. What about the innocent civilians? What about collective punishment, the ethics of war and collective punishment? We don't have time to go through it at length, but the Ramban deals with this question, and the Ramban quotes the Rambam who deals with this question. But I want to read to you in conclusion the Gur Aryeh, which is the commentary of the Marami Prague on Rashi. And he says the following, Kasha, im shechem chata kola ir machatu larog. If Shechem sinned, good, kill him. But the whole city, what did they do? Collective punishment? Innocent civilians? And he quotes Tiritz HaRambam. The Rambam says, B'nei Noach HaMetzuvim Because all non-Jews are obligated in the seven Noachide laws. And one of the seven Noachide laws is to observe a system of justice. And this was a gross injustice. This is also a lesson. When people sit idly by and allow terror to reign in their hospitals and mosques and kindergartens, when they vote in terrorists democratically as governance, when they are polled and 70% say we're proud of what the terrorists did, then they are not innocent civilians and victims. They are in fact accomplices to the heinous terror. That's the Rambam. Because there is an obligation, one of the seven Noachide laws is dinim, is justice. And when a person does not stand for and fight for and vote for justice, then they are also guilty. That is the Rambam. But says the Maral nearly, You know when you talk about innocent bystanders and innocent civilians? When you're not in a war. But war, by definition, has its own set of rules and laws. For example, a person can't go up to someone else and kill them. But in war... You defeat the enemy. You're not violating murder. It's not an act of murder in war, because war has its own set of laws. Since this was a national war, Shechem abducted Dina in the name of the whole city, in the home of the name of the whole nation, the whole country. It became a war between two nations. And when there is a war between two peoples, the laws of warfare are what, are what govern. Now in war, let me be very clear, there's not a more ethical, moral army in the world than the Israeli army. And in war, of course we still try to preserve. Of course we have to still try to protect innocent lives. However, war always has civilian casualties. Google, look it up later. How many civilians did America kill in Iraq and Afghanistan? How many? What do you think it is? 10? 100? 1,000? 10,000? It's more than half a million. We're not proud of that. I'm sure the American army did everything it could to avoid that, but that is the nature of war. And do you know who was responsible for the loss of those civilian lives? It's not the army who protected itself, but the aggressor, the initiator, the immoral, unethical terrorists who launched it to begin with. They are the ones responsible with the loss of those civilian lives. But don't hesitate, because that's part of war. And says the Maral, the Gurarye and Rashi, that is the right and the responsibility. The right and the responsibility. And Rav Shechter quotes this Maral in his Be'ikve Atzon, as applying still to today. There's a lot more to say and unpack on this question of collective punishment and civilian war. We didn't get into Yaakov wrestling with the angel at all. 
Who was the angel? Why did he go back for these small flasks? When Yaakov meets up with Esav, Lemiata, to whom do you belong? He tells the messengers, they're going to ask, who do these belong to? Which is a funny question. Who else could they belong to? Right, there's a lot more to say, but we're going to read Parshas Vayishlach again next year. Mirza Shem in Yerushalayim. In Yerushalayim together. Please stay for Tehillim.